Thank you, Brother Eric and ladies. You know, we could go back to uh, um, those songs and preach a message from some of those lyrics because they're so powerful. My sin, oh, the bliss. My sin, not in part, not just a little bit of it, all of it. It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. If you will, you can take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 20 this morning. Exodus 20. This is the last in our series of the Repentance Road to Revival. Next Sunday, Brother Gary will be here, and I'm excited about what God's going to do. As I, as I look how God is putting these things together during this week, I will remind you, prayer meetings on Tuesday and Thursday at 7 o'clock, and then we have our regular Wednesday night prayer meeting at uh, uh, 6.30 on Wednesday night. So a week of prayer, and then next Saturday night, we're not only going to have the fish fry, but we're also going to have the worship center open for prayer uh, from what, Lori, 3 to 9? Is that what we said? 3 to 9. So I'll begin with a powerful word. It's a personal word. It's a word for you. It's a word for me this morning. If there ever was a time in your life, in my life, that you were closer to the Lord than you are right now, this message, this emphasis, This is for you. This is for you. I stand in front of you every week and for the last month been encouraging us toward this repentance road toward revival. And whether you know it or not, after you stood in front of a crowd for quite a while over the years, a lot of different crowds, you can pretty well tell who's really engaged in in the process of what you're sharing you tell those folks who are looking for it, expecting of it, they're engaged. You also can tell the people that are kind of undecided. Just, you know, I don't know enough yet. And sadly, you can tell those who are not interested. And why do we have those three types of people? Well, because the road, the repentance road to revival is not an easy road. We used to sing songs about it not being an easy road. But it's a needed journey. If you look around us today, it's a needed journey. It's a required journey. And the rewards of taking this journey together are innumerable. It makes the trip worthwhile. What have I done this past month? Well, let me compare it this way. In the 1900s, early 1900s, before electricity was uh, so prevalent, the streets of small towns were lit by gassed gas lights. And somewhere, sometime around or after dark, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures of them. Somewhere, sometime after dark, somebody would go down the road. Either they would ride a bicycle, put a ladder on it, and you'd see one, that guy on one side on my left, on our left, and a ladder, or another guy had a long pole. And what, he would, what these guys would do would be just to light the lamps so the roadway could be lit so people could find the way without tripping over the things that were in their path. I will tell you that all the time I I try to be that. They're called lamp lighters. I try to be that lamp lighter. But it's been no more focused in my heart than this past month, that I've just tried to to 
illuminate the road toward revival. The repentance road to revival. I will just tell you, every one of those words are important. Because you see, brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you a lot of things that you already know. But here's one thing. Being a child of God is more than simply attending a worship service once a week. It speaks of us placing our faith in Christ Jesus for the salvation of our soul. It speaks of us being filled with his spirit. And it speaks of us walking daily in that spirit. It's about being changed from the inside out so much so that people know we are filled with him because of the joy that we that comes out of us. We are filled with him so we are filled with joy. And then we're ready to speak about Jesus because he's given us so much joy from the inside out. And I'm just going to say this. If you're missing the joy, you're missing the best part of the journey. You see, we know that's what I just said is all about what it is to be a Christian. Change from the inside out. Filled with the Spirit. Filled with joy. Being ready to speak. And yet revival is needed when the church, that would be you and me, when the church has grown cold to these things. Brother Jerry, what are you talking about? Well, you could go to Revelation chapter 2. And you can read about the church of Ephesus. They have good and great people in it. And Jesus brags on them and says, man, I know you've done this. You've done these great things. You, you, you have such great influence. But i got something against you. You've left. You've lost. You've abandoned. Or you've replaced the love you had at first. Now, what was that love they had at first? It was Jesus. Because Jesus was the one that had made a difference in their life. Sin had replaced their spiritual walk. Think about that. Sin, that Satan always makes it feel good and acts like it is good in our human capacity, but it replaced their spiritual walk with Jesus so they've walked away from their first love. For the past month, and I made no secret about this, for the past month we, we have been making a, a, a kind of a, ta- a countdown on the top ten sins. You know, I got nine of these from Kevin. I'm going to remind you of those before I move forward. Just put them up here. We began four weeks ago with weak pulpits. No matter what pulpit you have, what pulpit you're in, whether it's a here whether it's in Sunday school, whether it's in small group or some other mission organization, is that, you can back that up, please, is that, is that we need to be given the uncompromised message. And what is the uncompromised? Let me give you the message. We've got to speak the truth in love. That we have to speak the truth. The truth is you and I are sinners. We'll never do anything that will take us away from our sin nature. The evil ones always pull us that direction. We're sinners. But God is love. That's the truth. 
Now, what about that love? Speak the truth in love. What's the love part? God loves us so much that while we were sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us, that Jesus could save us, and then the Holy Spirit to fill us. That's what the pulpit needs to be about. And then we talk about the uh, tiny faith. What kind of faith do we have in God? We serve a big God. Do we have a big faith, or do we just have a faith that if the bottom line works out, it's okay? God can override the bottom line. I just thought of that. But that's a good statement. God can override the bottom line. Tiny faith. Timid prayers comes next. Timid prayers. When you have a tiny faith, then you're real reticent to really ask God for anything. And God wants you to come before him just like Jesus did and ask him for big things. And then we move to small commitment. I know everybody in this building is committed. But are you committed to the right things? Are you committed to him? Or does he fall on down on your list? Oops. Or does he fall down on your list a little bit? I mean, I'm committed to this and I'll do this first and then I'll do this, so this second, second, third, and then when God when I get down to where God is, I'll give him. That's called a small commitment. The Bible knows nothing about that. Jesus gave his all and expects all from us. Total commitment. Small commitment. Then silent witness. I said this uh, past two weeks, a silent witness in any venue is worthless. You go into legal court, you're, you're hindering the truth. In God's court, you're hindering the truth and you're hindering salvation. It could impact where one of your loved ones spends eternity. Silent witness. Then it's no joy. You know, why is it that we feel like that we can laugh and have a great time when we're out in the parking lot, but when we come in here, you got to kind of wipe the smile off your face, Debbie. Just got to wipe that smile off your face. If the joy is really coming from inside, it should exude right here because he's the one that gives us joy. And then last week we took two more little compassion. We should just be compassionate for those that we know. We should be compassionate for everybody. And then dry eyes. And we talked about this thing of weeping and crying. Dry eyes. And we'll get back to that a little bit today. And now today, that's 10987654.3. So number two is shallow worship. And so now we'll just kind of clear that board and get it so we can focus just on the shallow worship. Shallow worship. Now here's here's what I want to say to you is that both of those words are important if we're going to deal with the sin. And so what I prefer to do is deal with the worship first and then we'll come back to the shallow part. If we are to recognize this sin, we have to get established in our minds what is worship. I know you know this, and I may need to say it more than you need to hear it. But music, we have decided in the 20th century that music is worship. I can tell you as a 50-year professional church musician, music is not worship. Music is not worship. Now, music can aid us. Music can assist us. Music can draw us in. But music in and of itself is not worship. 
Eric could tell you, he and I have had so many conversations over 16, 17 months, is that uh, your pastor wants our music always to be done well, and we should. But I'm just going to tell you this. I've been on stage with professionals who can sing and play the stars down, and they can sing and play the stars down of the old hymns or the new songs, and it's simply not worship. God speaks to this. I ask you to turn to Exodus 20. You didn't think I'd ever going to get to the Bible. Exodus 20, this is where God initially speaks to it. This is when Moses is on the mountain. He's about to receive the Ten Commandments. And this scripture, Exodus 20, verse 1. And it reads like this. And God spoke all of these words saying, now here he goes, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And I'm going to pause there to say this to you. You know what the word from here that God speaks to you, if you're a Christ follower? He says, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the darkness. I'm the one that brought you out of the darkness into the light, out of the bondage of sin. And here's what he's telling you. Verse 3, you shall have no other God, this translation says, before me, some say beside me, but I would say is in front of him. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself a car of image, house, car, camp, mountain home, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth below, or that is in the water beneath the earth. Any questions? I think he just about covered it. Do you know why God led? Now, I don't know all the reasons, but you know what I suspect is the reason that God led when he was giving Moses the Ten Commandments, why he led with this? For two reasons. Number one, he designed you and me. He wrote into us the need, the desire to worship and worship something. It's in your, it's in your blood. It's in your veins. You'll never get rid of it. You go in the, in the darkest, remotest of Africa and you'll find that they're worshiping something. It is in your blood. So God created us to worship. The second reason is God knew that the Israelites had spent 400 years among pagan people in Egypt worshiping idols. And he knew that they would go back. Now, if you will, flip over to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. Now, let me just say something for, for those that may not know. Most of you have been in Sunday school enough to know this. Most people get the idea that when, when Moses went on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, is that he got up one morning, he ate breakfast with the gang, and he said, I'm going to go up on the mountain. God's going to give me the Ten Commandments. I'll be right back down. And he was back before dark. That's not really how it happened. What happened is that God got him up on the mountain, away from those guys. He kept him there a while. And you can go back in your private study and you can read from Exodus 20 and Exodus 32. He's still on the mountain. He's still on the mountain. And you see why he was on the mountain? Watch, watch how important this is to, to write those words right there. While he was on the mountain... And he was saying, there's no other God before me, no graven image. The people were down in the valley forcing Aaron to make them something to worship. Because we're given to worship. 
So now in, verse, in chapter 32, we'll read one verse. And it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, kind of ganged up on him, and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. You see, the truth is, is that while Moses was on the mountain, God taught him many things. But down in the valley, they thought, God is taking too long. Moses is probably dead. So here's what they did. Listen to me, Baptist. You're going to love this. They took matters into their own hands and did things their way. Hello? Now, I'll just pause a second to tell you that in my mind, Aaron's a picture of somebody who has a tiny faith. As long as Moses was around, he's good and solid. But when Moses is gone, his leader is gone, his dependence is gone, his personal commitment was not so strong, and he didn't have anything to lean on. So he let the sheep lead the shepherd. And you know what? He made them up. I don't want you to miss this. Why don't you miss this? He made them an idol and worship it. They did. You see, if you read on down, you'll find that they were coming down the mountain and they could hear them from a long way off yelling and screaming and shouting and worship to the, to the idol. They had given their gold to make this thing. And now they were, you ready for this? I'm gonna mess up with, I'm gonna mess up some of the Baptist, uh, uh, doctrine. They were singing. They were shouting. Haley, they were dancing. I said the D word in a Baptist church. They were giving all they had to this calf. That was worship. Now, it's a false God, but that's the way you worship. And you say, well, Brother Jerry, what in, the, what in the world is worship? Well, turn with me to Ezra. Turn with me to Ezra, chapter 3, and be reminded that Ezra, Ezra led the Israelites in true revival. Ezra, chapter 3, do I have it up there, um, Ben? Three chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. Here's what it says. You're going to love this. Now, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord... The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they responded, sang responsively. That means the leaders sang, and then the congregation responded, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And this was their chorus, sang it over and over. For the Lord is good, his mercy endures forever. Of course, it's toward Israel there, but it's toward us today. The Lord is good, his mercy endures forever. <laughs> oh, this is getting wild. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house was laid. Just hang on there just a second. I want you to see that. Do you see this is a worship taking place? Worship to the authentic God 
taking place. The priests and the Levites had trumpets and cymbals. We can get on Pentecostals for being too loud, but I'm telling you what, it wasn't any louder than this right here, Pud. Trumpets and cymbals. People shouted at the work of the Lord. But then it goes on from that. But many of the priests and Levites and head of the fathers, old men. Watch this. This is the guys who can remember. Okay, so I'm going to speak to the guys who can remember. Remember the work of God. Watch this. Wept. There goes your dry eyes. With a loud voice. When the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. So that, this is what the racket was, people could not discern the noise of the shout from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout. Here it is. And the sound was heard from afar off. Old timers began to remember how it was in the old days. And they knew Here's what I'll say to you folks my age and older. We should have walked with the Lord so long that no matter what happens, we know when he's in control and when he steps up that the, that the future is going to be even better than the past. If we've really given ourselves to him, their service, according to Baptists, were getting out of hand because they were weeping and they were wailing and they were shouting. And all that had happened is that the foundation of the temple had been laid. The whole thing hadn't even been completed. They remembered that they had been delivered. They had been restored. They had been renewed. They had been revived. They worshiped God with all they had. The true God. And that's a good place to stop and make this point. That's what worship is. Brothers and sisters, it's not coming in and singing three hymns and two courses and having a special music or having a praise band lead. That's not what it is. True worship is giving all you have Unabandoned, unhindered, unbound, unrestrained to him. And that's exciting because you see in the church in America today, one of the great, one of the great problems today is dead, cold, dry, boring services that put people to sleep. Don't shout in our service. You'll wake somebody up. You see, there's no energy. There's no power. There's no power. There's no life. There's no enthusiasm. Let's go to Jesus. You know what Jesus said? Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, most important is, is, most important is, listen, Israel, listen up. I used to love that when Dr. Stanley did that, he'd go, listen up, guys, listen up. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here it is. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Strength. Love him physically with all you are. Mind. Love him mentally with all you are. Soul. Love him spiritually with all you are. Heart. Love him emotionally with all you are. I don't know about you, but for me, that just about covers it. That's about everything. It's giving God in worship all that we are. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to leave that up there just for a second. 
Let it seek in. Because here's our problem with this shallow worship. Anything less than all we are is a sin. Anything less than all we are is a sin. That's worship. Now, I've spent so much time on worship. I'm going to get to the rest of it. Y'all just hang on. But I want to mention in passing what shallow is. Shallow. Shallow. Now, I don't have to tell most of you. But what I am going to do is I'm going to illustrate this for you. Most of you know my daddy retired after many, 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 many years from Pearl Valley. I remember when daddy first went, I was, I was a tot, but I got to go to work with him sometimes. And I remember going out in a field with him. This was before they had bought digger trucks and bucket trucks. So if you don't have a digger truck, you know what you got to do? Mike, you know what you got to do? Those post hole diggers. We dug that thing down. Now, I want to tell you, as a kid, I always thought that the pole had to be eight foot in the ground. I've done some research, and, and if you want to know how deep your poles are, they're 10% of the length of the pole plus two foot. 10% plus two foot. Okay? And so that means if a, if a pole is 30 foot, a 30 foot pole has to be five foot in the ground. 40 foot pole has to be six foot in the ground. I remember digging that hole. And by the way, we didn't have a winch to put the pole in the ground, Eric. What we did is we backed the, tra- the trailer as close as we could when we dug the hole, and we manually rolled that big old chrysoat pole off on the ground, and we put the butt of it right at the hole, and then we'd go back here, and we would raise it up, walk it in the hole. I got tired one day, and I said, Daddy, that's about three foot. That's deep enough. Daddy said, Son, Dig it to the depth that we need, because if you don't, it's dangerous. It will fall down. Here's what I'm going to say to us quickly. Shallow, shallow anything is dangerous. That pole fall over and hit somebody, disrupt service. So you put it deep in the ground. Shallow worship is the same way. Shallow worship is what the Bible calls vain or empty worship. Jesus spoke to this. He quoted Isaiah when he said, These people honor me. They draw near to me with their mouth. And honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. And in vain, empty, shallow, they worship me, teaching his doctrine, the commandment of men. When I read that, you know what I think of? I think of the times that I sat in services, and my mind was on what we were going to eat for lunch, or the ball game I was going to watch, or the ball game we were going to have, or something else. Let me pray for us. Would you let me? Father, reading about these people who truly worshiped you leaves me without words. Forgive me, please. Forgive us. For the times we become like the children of Israel and worship the things that we want to work, that we want to worship, 
things that we have made ourselves. Please give us a heart for you and to worship you. Forgive us for our shallow worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Shallow worship. The last one is no fear of God. It was in 2004, 2005 that I drove up from the coast and I went to Temple in Hattiesburg for the State Evangelism Conference Conference I'm going to tonight and tomorrow. And I heard Dr. O.S. Hawkins preach a message entitled The Fear Factor. And I want to tell you, that rattled me. It touched my heart. And evidently it touched a lot of other preachers' hearts because that message is still available today online. I have a little book that he wrote of it. He, he autographed it for me. But it's still online as a PDF or a booklet. And he challenged us on this thing of the fear of God. And he used this scripture. Maybe he used the scripture. Acts 9, there it is. So, this is Acts 9, 31. So, throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace. The church throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in number. Now, that's the Christian Standard Version. In the King James, New King James, it says the church throughout those places, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, they had rest, was strengthened. And it says walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Watch this. They multiplied. They multiplied. It wasn't addition. It was multiplication. Now, here's what I want to say to you is that the reason that Brother Jerry felt that this tenth sin was so important. Watch this. It is being guilty of this tenth sin that leads us to the other nine. Every one of those other nine sins are a result of having no fear of God. Now these guys, these guys, I want you to think about the tools that they had. Think about the evidence that I'm giving you, the tools they have. They were walking in the fullness of the Spirit. They were walking and living in the Spirit of the Lord. And they had only two tools to use. Two tools. And yet they multiplied. They increased in number because of their lives and their lips. They lived in the shadow of the Almighty. They understood that He was watching over them. They were aware that He knew their works. He knew what they were doing. They knew his love, they knew his compassion, they knew his mercy. But clearly they understood who he was. The sovereign, the powerful, the the awesome, the mighty, God who created, God who watches over, God who judges all living things. And because they understood who he was, they found a way to live in the light of his love and to multiply. And it dealt with the fear of the Lord. I want you to see how this happens. Acts 2. The Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost and they are filled with awe. Acts 4. They're in the prayer room and the building is shaken and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 5. Now they're in the church and Ananias and Sapphira lie to the church and the Holy Spirit kills them. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen today? And by the way, when that happened in Acts 5, the church and everybody had a fresh fear of God. 
Acts 9, the fear was invading the church because if you remember, Stephen had been killed and the persecution by Saul of Tarsus happened. And then in chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus got saved. And so put that back up there for me, Ben, if you will. And so by the time we get to this part, they had rest from persecution. They had peace from persecution. And they were walking in the spirit of the Lord. They were, look up there, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit and filled with the fear of God. They had only two tools. Y'all with me? Two tools. Think about the tools that we have today. We have buildings. We have instruments. We have staff. We have recreational facilities. We have materials. We have uh, studies. We have organizations. We have technologies. We have all these things. And we do so little with so much. And you look back in Acts chapter 2, and they did so much with so little. I've discovered that when you're doing a job, you have to have the right tool. If you got, you know, there was a day, Steve, you'll know what I'm talking about. There was a day you took your car, it stopped running, you popped the hood, you could change the points, plugs, and condenser, and it'd run another 30 or 40,000 miles. Today, the car goes bad, you pop the hood, the same guy pops the hood, and he goes, what is that? It's called a computer. You gotta take it to the shop. You gotta have the right tools. For God to send revival on us, we must possess this tool of a fear of God. It's a motivating factor. I learned that from my dad. My sister will be here in the 11th service. You hear a lot about my dad. Let me just tell you something about him. He never, listen, I I hope our men are like this. He never hesitated to say, I love you. In fact, the last words that daddy told me before he died, and I didn't get to see him for three weeks when he died, the last words that daddy told me is, I love you, son. That wasn't anything unusual. He told me that every time. Every time we parted ways. When I was a kid, he told me, I love you, son. But when I was a kid, please listen. <laughs> daddy never hesitated to let us kids know about his position in our life. Y'all got what I'm, do I need to spell that out or y'all to understand what I'm saying? Got it. Thank you. Is that the truth is there's a false teaching today that says don't fear God because he's just a God of love. Well, he is a God of love. But that evokes a discussion on what you think love is and what he thinks love is because Jesus is our example about this. And God, and God does love us, but he also doesn't want us to spend an eternity in hell. All of us, as I begin to land this plane, all of us know the Roman road. Romans 3.10 says this. Is it written, there's no one righteous, not even one. And then down at 3.23 it says, for all have sinned, fallen short. Everybody know that? Give me a nod, I'll know your way. Sure, we know that. Here's what I'm going to tell you. If you go and you read that section from 3.10 to 3.23, you will discover that Paul, excuse me, that, that uh, Dr. Luke is trying to identify the, Dr. Luke, that Paul is trying to identify the people who are outside of Christ. Outside of Christ. None righteous, no, not one, for all of sin. But watch what he puts right in the middle of this. 
For the lost people, there's no fear of God before their eyes. You know, the old, we're going to leave that there, Ben. Just leave it there. You know what the Old Testament says about the fear of the Lord? You know what it says the fear of the Lord is? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's the hatred of evil. And the fear of the Lord gives strong confidence. Fear, salvation, and the Holy Spirit and revival are all part and parcel of being saved. In order to be saved, you have to come to the place that you know that you're lost apart from God. That you know that not only in this life are you lost, but in the life to come that you're lost and you're on your way to hell. And then as you see His God's love for you through Jesus, you put your trust in Jesus to forgive your sin, to change your life, to change your direction, and to save your soul. Oh, baptism, church membership, a discipleship, and all this other is a part of what we should do. Living in the Spirit and, and trusting in Jesus. But salvation is the beginning part. Have you been saved? Has that change come into your life? Let me push it a step further. I know we're a little over time. Push it a step further. As human beings, even after we're saved, we are prone to sin. We're prone to leave the God we love because the enemy looks, pulls at us and he's trying, to, he's trying to destroy a joy. He's trying to destroy the happiness that we find in holiness in Jesus. So from time to time, we find ourselves with a cold heart, with a hard heart. Those have been brought about by the sin in our lives. It could be just an attitudinal sin. It could be something we committed. It could be something we omitted to do. At that point, we're ready to, to embrace the reality. We are ready to recollect. Embrace the reality that our hearts have grown cold. Satan has won a uh, small victory in our lives. To recollect what it was like to walk with God closely and repent of that sin. And then we'll be ready for revival. In the past four weeks, I have done my best to lay this before us. We visited all ten of these Ben, can you put them up there, please? All ten of these. I ask you as I close today, which sin is yours? Which sin is yours? John Flabel wrote this. He said, it's easier to cry against 1,000 sins of other people than to kill one of your own. And here's what I'm going to remind us as I end. In the Old Testament, one man caused an army of 1.2 million people. One sin. One man, one sin, caused an army of 1.2 million, million people to be defeated. 
Which one is your sin? I'll tell you, my fear is that one day I get to heaven and God looks at me and said, You know, Jerry, when y'all were pushing and praying for revival at New Hope, you had one thing in your life that you wouldn't repent of. And so I couldn't send revival. I don't want to be that person. Do you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our skewed vision of you. Forgive us for our lack of repentance. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.